Psalm 7. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil, or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger, lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me, you have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. This is God's word. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, as we have now considered Psalm chapter 7, Lord, we pray that you would give us great understanding in your word. Lord, that you would speak to us through your holy word. And God, we pray that you would lead us in the truth today and that you would continue to guide us as your people. Lord, we love you. We're here to worship you. We're here to grow in the ways that you want us to grow. And so, God, we trust that through your holy word, you're going to produce growth in each of our lives. Lord, for any who have joined us this morning who have never put their faith in Jesus, Lord, we pray that that would happen here today. That maybe for the first time in their life, they would come to realize the amazing love of God for them. And so, Lord, we just pray that you'd bless again our time in your word now and you'd minister to us. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. And you should be in Psalm chapter 7. Thank you so much, Kristen, for reading this passage for us. Uh, this is going to be um, another, as you, as you just saw, another psalm of lament here this morning. We've kind of been in this uh, pretty emo phase for the last month or so of David just being really, really discouraged about a lot of different things going on in his life, and that's going to continue here this morning. Next week, we're going to get into a beautiful poem or a psalm of praise, which will be a lot of fun to shift gears, and then we'll jump right back into lament again. Um, which, as we've mentioned before, is pretty appropriate in light of the year that we've all just come through and the continuing challenges in the world. So we're trusting that the Lord is teaching us as a church family how to lament together. I was thinking this week about how much better the world would be if all of us, not just us in this room, but all of us as, as humanity, would just simply follow the Ten Commandments. I mean, could you imagine how different the world would be if we would just listen to and follow the Ten Commandments. There'd be no more stealing. There'd be no more lying. There'd be no more cheating. There'd be no more killing, no more workaholics, no more envy, no more greed. What a wonderful world it would be, again, if we just abided by those simple Ten Commandments. 
As you know by now, it's through the breaking of God's law that all of the problems that we see in the world, all the destruction that ex- that's happening in the world comes. It all comes through our disobedience to God's law. Now, Psalm 7 brings the ninth commandment to the fore for us, which is, of course, you shall not bear false witness. And that commandment uh, obviously has legal overtones. The idea of the ninth commandment is that uh, it, is, it is an abomination to uh, be in a court of law and lie about the other person. If that person's innocent and you know it, then you're not supposed to try to get that person uh, convicted of something. And on the flip side, if you know a person's guilty of something, you don't try to get that person off the hook. You don't bear false witness. You tell the truth. You declare it as it is. And here in Psalm 7, this is sort of an issue that's going on. It's an issue of false accusations, not being truthful, trying to be deceptive about another person. And false accusations are so incredibly destructive. And the reason for that is because since the accusation is false and it's not based in reality, there's nothing that you can confess, there's nothing for you to repent of, And therefore, there's no way that you can go seek reconciliation with the person. And so the best thing that you can do, or all that you can do, I guess, is try to defend yourself. But even that oftentimes blows up in your face because people generally think uh, where there's smoke, there's a fire, right? If you're defending yourself, maybe it's because you're covering something up and there really is a thing going on here. And so no matter how you try to slice it, false accusations are just going to wreak havoc in your life. And it's so incredibly destructive and God hates it. And God is against it and we should be against it too. The psalmist here in Psalm chapter 7 is the victim of false accusations against him. Slander against his character. And it's bringing great, great um, consequences in his life. Now I want to begin with the superscription which is right there before verse 1. So if you look at your Bible or look at the screens, it'll come up. And it says this, a Shigian of David. I bet you were wondering how I'd pronounce that word, huh? A Shigian, that's probably wrong, who knows, of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. Now, this psalm then is, is written out of an experience where there's these words coming from a man named Cush that are grieving David. Now, we know nothing else about this Cush the Benjaminite from the canon of Scripture. He's not referenced anywhere other than Psalm 7 in the superscription there. And so we don't know the exact historical context that uh, brought about Psalm chapter 7. But what we do know from the canon of Scripture is that David had ongoing issues with the tribe of Benjamin, both during the reign of Saul, so before David became king, And long after David was king, this was a tribe that just created a lot of grief for King David. If you were here with us a few weeks ago, we were talking about this Benjaminite named Shimei, who when David was fleeing from his son Absalom, and he fled the city of Jerusalem with his men, he's traveling through the countryside and Shimei begins heaping curses on David's head. Well, Shimei was a Benjaminite. And part of the curses he was heaping on David's head was basically, well, hey, this is God bringing judgment on you for what you did to presumably Saul and many others. 
I want you to pay attention to the fact that Saul himself was from the tribe of Benjamin. Saul was a Benjaminite. And we know from the historical record that Saul himself pursued David's life and he hunted him down because of lies that were told to him about David being disloyal and David being treacherous. Pay attention then to the parallels um, of this passage that I want to read for you out of 1 Samuel to Psalm 7, which we've already read. This is 1 Samuel verses 18, or I'm sorry, 1 Samuel chapter 24, verses 8 through 15. Here's what we read. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul. So David's being pursued by Saul and Saul's men. And now David calls out to Saul. He says, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you check this out? Why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? So pause for a moment. So David is saying, Saul, you're listening to slander. You're listening to gossip about people or from people who are saying that I'm actually trying to harm you. He's saying, why do you listen to that? Verse 10, David says, behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, Out of the wicked comes wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. So David there, again, in that historical setting, is having to defend himself and he's on the run because somebody is lying to Saul and telling Saul that David is committing treason. Now, whether that text in 1 Samuel is the historical backdrop of Psalm 7 or not, we don't know. But either way, Cush is claiming that David has been treacherous to a friend. We see that in verse 4. And that word friend is literally ally. And so here in Psalm 7, just as in 1 Samuel, David is now looking to the Lord for justice because he's not getting justice in the here and now. He's actually the victim of injustice. The title of this morning's sermon is Looking for Justice. Looking for Justice. And in verses 1 and 2, we begin here, David begins here rather, with an appeal for rescue. An appeal for rescue. Let's look at it again. David begins this way. He says, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. So David begins this prayer in a way that is becoming quite common to us as we're studying the Psalms. It's by calling out to the Lord for rescue. David's in a perilous situation and he says, Save me, deliver me, O Lord. 
And when danger comes upon David, he takes refuge in the Lord. That's a common uh, expression in the Psalms. This idea of God being a refuge. It's a picture of God being a fortress that the righteous can flee to to be protected when they're under attack. And make no mistake about it. The threat of attack is very real for David here. His pursuers are after him and they intend great harm. We see that in verse 2. Right? He says, Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it to pieces. Now if the background of Psalm 7 is the flight of David from Saul, then we understand how serious this threat is. Saul and his troops were literally trying to come and kill David. They were in pursuit of him through the deserts. And if they had gotten their hands on him, they were going to kill him. A lion, of course, is the fiercest beast. A lion is an apex predator. Nobody can mess with the king of the jungle, right? The lion does whatever he wants to do. A more literal translation of this expression uh, in verse 2 They tear my soul apart could be tear my throat out. Tear my throat out. Now that's graphic, but think about it. That's exactly how a lion kills its prey. They grab the prey and they bite its throat and suffocate it and kill the animal. Now when the lion catches its prey, there is no other animal that can come to its rescue. Right? If even if, even if another gazelle is like, that's my friend, I want to go help. They're not stepping in. The lion has got the prey and there is no other animal that can stop him. He's too powerful and so death for the victim is certain. And that's how David sees this threat. He's looking at it and he's saying, if my pursuers, O oh Lord, get a hold of me, there is no one to help me. There is nobody on earth who can intervene and deliver me out of their hands. And thus David says, i got to look to you, Lord. You've got to be the one that delivers me. You've got to be the one that protects me. There is no one on earth strong enough to deliver me from this threat. Now as Christians, we can identify with this prayer, even if we don't have human pursuers, even if there's nobody physically seeking your life. Because we know that we have a lion who is greater than Cush the Benjaminite or Saul the king of Israel who wants to tear our souls apart and show us no mercy. Peter speaks about this great lion in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Peter writes to the church, he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And friend, there is no one on earth who is strong enough to fight off Satan, the great adversary of your soul. And so we must, like David, call out to the Lord alone. Because guess what? Satan is like a lion who's seeking to devour you. But Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and so he's the true king of the jungle. And at the end of the day, when we look to Jesus and we call upon Jesus, we have nothing to fear from the enemy. Jesus teaches us in the Lord's Prayer to pray this, deliver us from the evil one. We call upon the Lord to deliver us from the evil one. Well, after this initial appeal for rescue in verses 1 and 2, David now begins to appeal for justice. And this gets to the essence of this psalm. 
It's now an appeal for justice. And the initial appeal for justice comes in the form of a protest of innocence. David basically saying, Lord, I'm not guilty of these charges. We see this in verses 3 through 5. David says, O Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. And let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. David's essentially saying, Lord, I want justice. Do what is right. If if I'm in the wrong, if I've really betrayed my ally, if I've really repaid evil for good, if that's true, Lord, then give me what I deserve. Let the enemies come. Let them take me over. Let them destroy my life because I deserve it. This is a request for justice. Now, in many Psalms, as some of you already know, David is quick to confess sin. David's not afraid to admit when he's wrong. David's not afraid to say, Lord, I've sinned, forgive me. And so here, as he's protesting his innocence and saying, actually, in this case, I'm not sinful. We don't need to be suspicious. Like, is David trying to cover something? Is David hiding his sin? Is David blinded to his own sin? David's not like our kids who are never in the wrong, right? You come to your kids and you ask them who did what, and it's always, they did it. They did it. It wasn't me. David's not doing that. David is very forthright with this sin. But in this case, David knows, I didn't do this. This is a false accusation. It's slander. It's a lie. And so he's coming before the Lord and saying, so Lord, if it's true, give me what I deserve. Give me what I deserve. Of course, David could only pray like that because he knows that he's innocent. As we read a moment ago, David had a chance to kill Saul. Actually, he had two chances to kill Saul. And on both occasions, he would not lift his hand against Saul. David went way above and beyond in avoiding treachery. And when you think about it, he couldn't have possibly done anything more than what he did to demonstrate his loyalty to Saul. On two occasions, he could have killed him and he let him live to say to Saul, I am not your enemy. David did everything in his power to discredit the slanderous accusations that were being made about him. And yet, here comes Cush the Benjaminite still leveling accusations. Spurgeon pointed out that we shouldn't be surprised when false accusations are lobbed against the godly, when saints are slandered. Spurgeon said this, he said, It is only at the tree full of fruit that men throw stones. It's only at the tree full of fruit that men throw stones. And so no matter how much you might try to discredit false accusations and live above reproach, at times don't be surprised when evil people, out of the evilness of their own heart, bring slanderous accusations against you. The righteous are going to have to wait until heaven to live free of all slander. Verse 5 ends with Selah. Remember, this is a musical or a liturgical term of unknown meaning, but it was likely a tool that that was used to to sort of add emphasis to what had just been said. And so it, it either meant to be quiet for a moment and reflect on what was just said, or it likely meant actually to raise your voices or to 
um, build up the instruments louder to add emphasis on what was just being said. And so David here has made this protest of innocence. Essentially, he's made a vow before the Lord. If I've done this, then let them destroy me. Then he says, Selah. And it's a good reminder that it is no small thing to make a vow before the Lord. And David knows this. In verses 6 and 9, the appeal for justice continues by now calling on God to judge between him and his accusers. Look at verse 6. David says, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me, you have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. David says, arise, lift yourself up, awake for me. David is calling on the Lord who up to this point has appeared to be ignoring what's going on or just unconcerned about it. And David's saying, Lord, you've got to rise up in this moment and take your seat on the throne of judgment. You've got to act as a judge for me in this. That's the language In verse 7, it's this, let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. So kind of call court into session, Lord. And then he says, over it, return on high. Or above it, speaking of the assembly, take your seat on high. So again, the picture is David saying, "Just, just bring everybody together into the courtroom and sit down on your seat of judgment. This is what David needs. He needs God to pass judgment in his case. In verse 8, David says, The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, he writes, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. So after calling the Lord, calling on the Lord to rise up in judgment, then David says, the Lord judges the peoples. It's what God does. He's the judge of all the earth we read in the scriptures. His judgments are true and exacting and so David is reminding himself the Lord judges the people and then David says, so judge me. He says, according to my righteousness and my integrity. Now I'll confess to most of us as Christians, that sounds a little presumptuous and it sounds a little bit foolish. God, judge me according to my righteousness. Judge me according to my integrity, Lord. Lord, look at my good deeds and judge me according to that. As Christians, we're trained not to think in those terms because we understand that if God were to judge us according to our righteousness, what would happen? We'd be in hell. If it was about our righteousness, we'd be in hell. And so the reason we think that way about the concept of judgment is because as Christians, we tend to think of judgment in eternal terms. We tend to think of judgment from the perspective of what Scripture calls the great white throne judgment, right? That's the judgment that is going to happen at the end of the age where God is going to separate the wheat and the chaff, where God is going to send some people into heaven and some people to hell, And so when we think about judgment that way, we as Christians rightly recognize our only hope is the righteousness of Christ. Because if God judges me for my righteousness, I'm going to hell, period. 
There's no escaping it. I need the righteousness of Christ, and that's a great instinct, and as Christians, that's exactly how we should think. But the result of that is that when we think about judgment, that's almost always a scary thought. And we always have negative feelings about judgment, but what's so ironic is that for the Jew, and we see it with David here, the Jews so often thought about judgment as a positive thing, as something that they desired. Because even though the Jews, like us Christians, did think of God as an eternal judge, most often they were calling on God to judge them in the here and now. They needed God's judgment in their life situations and circumstances. Whereas you and I almost never need God to step in and judge in our life's circumstances. But we need to know that that comes from a place of privilege. C.S. Lewis writes in his Reflections on the Psalms about how people who are victims of injustice feel about the concept of judgment. And I quote, The poor woman, he writes, of Luke 18, has had her little strip of land, room for a pigsty or a hen run, taken away from her by a richer and more powerful neighbor. Nowadays, it would be the planning commission or some other body, he writes. And she knows she has a perfectly watertight case. If once she could get into court and have it tried by the laws of the land, she would be bound to get that strip back. But no one will listen to her. She can't get it tried. No wonder, Lewis writes, she is anxious for judgment. Behind this lies an age-old and almost worldwide experience which we have been spared. In most places and times, it has been very difficult for the small man to get his case heard. The judge, and doubtless one or two of his underlings, has to be bribed. If you can't afford to oil his palm, your case will never reach court. Our judges do not receive bribes. We probably take this blessing too much for granted. It will not remain with us automatically. We need not therefore be surprised if the Psalms and the prophets are full of longing for judgment and regard the announcement that judgment is coming as good news. Hundreds and thousands of people who have been stripped of all they possess and who have the right entirely on their side will at last be heard. Of course, they are not afraid of judgment. They know their case is unanswerable. If only it could be heard. When God comes to judge, at last it will, end quote. So see, so for many people throughout human history, and unfortunately for many people in the world right now, their legal systems are such that injustice just gets to happen left and right. In our system, for the vast majority of people and vast majority of instances, if somebody steals something from you, somebody cheats you out of something, somebody does something to injure you or your family, there is a course of action you can take at a human level to rectify that. So we seldom feel like we need to call on God to judge between us and this other party. We just go to the court system. We just hire a lawyer and take matters into our own hands or call a cop. But for so many people, that's not the case. And therefore, they are calling out to God, would you judge for me in this situation? Would you reveal my innocence? Would you bring consequences on this evil person who's abusing me and taking advantage of me because if God doesn't do it, there's no hope for them. So David here in Psalm 7 is eager for judgment because David knows he's innocent on the matter and he knows that he has no way of rectifying the situation if God doesn't intervene. 
He knows he's going to be vindicated because nothing escapes the all-seeing eyes of God. Cush could be lying, perhaps again, maybe lying to Saul and telling him all these wrong things about David. Saul could be believing it. But David says, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. God sees the truth. God knows what's going on in David's heart. God knows what David's doing in his life. And so David knows he's going to be vindicated. That's why in verse 10, he says that his defense or his shield is with God. But that's not the case for the wicked. Because God is a righteous judge, which is what verse 11 says, God always acquits the innocent and he always punishes the guilty. He never mixes that up. He receives no bribes. He shows no favoritism. God is an impartial, just judge. He's perfectly fair, and he knows all the facts in every single case. It's amazing. David is comforted by that fact. In verse 12, we begin to read now of God's attitude toward the, the wicked as a judge. Here's verse 12. David says, If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword he has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared him or for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Those are some scary verses, right? That's really, really terrifying language to describe God and his attitude as judge and executioner, if you will, in this trial. But what I love is that even now there's still hope for the wicked. Do you see it there at the beginning of verse 12? Even now, even after all the wrongdoing of this wicked person that's attacking David's character and putting his life in danger, there's still hope for this wicked person. There's a way of escaping the wrath of God and it's right there in verse 12, very, very clear. Repent. Repent, turn away from your wickedness, and you can avert the wrath of God. It doesn't have to go down this way, is what David is saying in verse 12. Friends, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. None. It does not delight God. Scriptures are replete with that. Here's Ezekiel 33:11. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Do you see God's heart there? God is just and he's going to judge justly, but God is also patient and kind, and he's giving opportunity for repentance, and he's pleading for it. Return to me, turn away from your sin, and you can avert my wrath. But, for those who persist in their wickedness, God takes up arms against them. We read that he sharpens his sword. That he bends and readies his bow. That's like cocking the pistol. That he prepares his deadly weapons. That he takes his arrow tips and he ignites them so that they're flaming darts that he's going to shoot. Spurgeon offers this warning to the unrepentant, and I quote, what blows are those which will be dealt by that long uplifted arm? God's sword has been sharpening upon the revolving stone of our daily wickedness. And if we will not repent, it will speedily cut us in pieces. 
Turn or burn is the sinner's only alternative. He hath bent his bow and made it ready. Even now the thirsty arrow longs to wet itself with the blood of the persecutor. The bow is bent, the aim is taken, the arrow is fitted to the string. And what, O sinner, if the arrow should be let fly at thee even now? Remember, God's arrows never miss the mark and are, every one of them, instruments of death. Judgment may tarry, but it will not come too late. The Greek proverb says, the mill of God grinds late, but grinds to powder, end quote. Yet as terrible as that sounds, verses 14 through 16 remind us of an incredibly important truth. And it's this, that God's wrath is not somehow coming after the innocent. That's not the way it works. God's wrath is coming after the wicked. Look at verse 14. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. David's using reproductive language there, talking about how the evil that's being done is actually being born out of an evil heart. That it's somebody who is given over to evilness and therefore it's all giving birth to evil words and actions. David sees this person premeditating mischief. David rightly sees this wicked person as a person who is out to harm God's good creation, the creation that God loves, and God's going to have none of it. Look at verses 15 and 16. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. So this evil person who's conceiving these wicked schemes in their own heart, David says he's digging a pit so that other people will fall into it. He's planning violence that he's going to use against somebody else to destroy them and harm them. And yet that violence is going to backfire. And this is so helpful because I think these verses temper or balance for us our view of God's judgment of the wicked. Even here, where God is pictured as this warrior who is ready to actively inflict punishment, do you notice that when it all comes down to it, the punishment is self-inflicted? God allows the devices of the wicked to return on their own heads. In other words, the judgment of, of God is to not step in and rescue, and instead turn the wicked over to their own self-destructive ways. That's what the judgment of God looks like in Psalm 7. God does not step in and rescue the wicked. Instead, he allows the wicked to be turned over to their own self-destructive ways. Even in Romans 1, the famous New Testament passage about the wrath of God, we see the exact same dynamic in place. Here's Romans 1.18. This is Um, the introduction of a paragraph, a couple paragraphs actually, on the wrath of God. Paul writes this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Okay, here come the lightning bolts, right? The wrath of God is going to be revealed from heaven against the unrighteousness of men. Cue the Michael Jackson gif of eating popcorn. That's one of my favorite gifs. 
It's like we're going to sit now. We're going to see the lightning bolts come down from God, right? Wrath of God is coming. No, check this out. What do we see in Romans 1? What does God's wrath bring? Here's verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Two verses later, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Two verses later, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So the wrath of God in Romans 1 is revealed in God giving people over to their own wickedness. Again, it's the idea of rather than stepping in and rescuing them from their wickedness, it's God saying, that's your decision. You want to persist in wickedness? I'm going to just turn you over to complete wickedness and all of the destruction that that will bring. Now, that's not to say that God is entirely passive in judgment. Certainly, God does and will actively intervene with judgment. There is coming a day when every single person who has ever lived on planet earth will stand before the judge of all the earth at the great white throne judgment. And we read there that we will be judged according to our works and of the wicked we read that they will be sent into outer darkness. But what I am trying to say from Psalm chapter 7 is that God has hardwired the moral universe in such a way that our evil has a way of boomeranging back upon us. So that for the person who seems convinced that living a wicked life and an evil life and a life of destruction is going to work out for their good, more often than not, the trap that they set for another person is the one that they themselves are caught by. And even in the instances where we can look and say, well, that person was so evil and they got away with it, The ultimate trap is set. And all of us after our earthly life do have to stand before the judge. And again, his judgment is exacting. He tests the minds and hearts of all people. And he is a perfectly just judge. This brings us now to the last verse. David has appealed for rescue. David has appealed for justice. And now, almost surprisingly, in verse 17, David applies himself to praise. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. Now, check this out. Even though David protested his own righteousness, right? He was like, hey, I'm righteous. Even though he protested his own righteousness, he only praises God's righteousness. He's going to give thanks to God, not for his own righteousness. In verse 17, he gives thanks for God's righteousness. This is a remarkable conclusion. David turned their slander into a song. David turned their persecution into praise. David turned their mischief into a melody. Okay, that's enough of that. I could do that all day, though. As a preacher, I can just make things rhyme like all day long, but that's enough of that. You get the point. But what's so remarkable about this is that David does all of that before the answer has even come. David's enemies are still there. But in prayer, what David has done in Psalm 7 and what you and I can do is David brings these problems into the presence of God. 
And because he does that, he is moved to a place of worship. Now, we love to turn our victories into verses, but the godly can turn even their pain into poetry. Okay, I'm totally done now, I promise. This is what David does here. He's able to take the sinful actions of other people. He's able to take the things that are actually potentially going to lead to his death, and again, through prayer, by bringing these things into the presence of God, he becomes a worshiper. And he can set this to song and actually make a joyful noise before the Lord. How does that happen? David worshiped God for a future that was promised on the basis of God's character. David worshiped God for a future that was promised on the basis of God's character. At the moment, David was not getting justice. But as David went to God in prayer and reflected on the truth that God is righteous and that God is a righteous judge, David knew that ultimately he would be vindicated, whether in this earthly life or the life to come. And he knew, he knew that ultimately, if his enemies did not repent, they would be judged, even if they get away with it now. And so David, as he is reminded of these glorious truths about God's character and the implications that have has on his life, he's moved to worship. And so, family, we praise God because he's going to wipe away every tear even if we're crying now. We praise God because he will fill us with good things, even if we're empty now. We praise God because he will heal up every wound, even if we're broken now. We praise God because he will remove all of our sin, even while we're sinful now. We praise God because we will conquer death, even if we're dying now. That's how this works. Even when it's not fixed now, we fix our eyes on the character and the promises of our God, and then we are moved to worship. It's amazing. And so I would say to you this morning, oh, how sweet it is to trust in Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much this morning for who you are. Lord, we need to constantly be reminded of your character and of your promises to us because these are the things that sustain our faith and sustain our life through all of the challenges that we face. Lord, we thank you this morning for the reminders that you are a righteous God. There is no evil in you. There is no um, turning away from what is right, what is just, what is true with you. You are perfectly righteous in all of your ways. And Lord, we're thankful for the reminder that you're omniscient, that you actually know and discern the thoughts and the intentions of every person's heart. We can be deceived by other people, and we can also deceive other people. And yet, no one deceives you, Lord, and so we know at the end of the day, justice will be done. 
Lord, we also thank you this morning for the amazing reminder that you are a patient God. That even as you are pictured here in Psalm chapter 7 as a warrior who is ready to inflict punishment on the wicked, we know that if the wicked would just repent and do as David has done here, turn to you and flee to you as a refuge and take refuge in you, we know that you would be a fortress to them even today. That they would be safe forevermore in you. So Lord, this morning we celebrate your patience. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to remind us throughout this week of your amazing character and of all of your promises to your people. Promises that ultimately will result in our good. Lord, you will never harm us. You're never working against us. And even when nothing looks right, even when everything seems to be going wrong. Lord, we pray that you would give us faith to trust again in who you are and what you've promised. And we pray, Lord, that no matter what season of life we find ourselves in, things are going amazing, things couldn't be worse. We pray that we, because of who you are, would be a worshiping people. That we'd find ample reason to have your praise upon our lips. So Lord, we love you. We thank you this morning for your love. And we commit ourselves as your people to you once again today in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen.